0: This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.
1: Hello and welcome to Primal Screen. A show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined tonight by guest reviewer and host of the International Pop Underground on your airwaves every Wednesday night. Anthony Carew. Hey, Carew.
0: Hi, how are you doing? It's actually stipulated in my contract that I'm celebrity special guest. <laughs>
1: <trivial>. <laughs> how could I forget? Oh, no,
0: I it's, These things are these titles. We work so hard for them over the years.
1: <laughs> I'll expect uh, some litigation in the <laughs> mail. <laughs> So on tonight's show, I'm going to speak with the director and co-writer of Lonely Spirits Variety Hour, Platon Theodorus, plus his co-writer and the star of the film, Natine uh, Vergaleka. And later tonight, we're going to review Goran Stilevski's Of an Age about an unexpected connection between an 18-year-old ballroom dancer and his friend's charismatic older brother. And we're going to finish the hour with our review of Matt Ruskin's Boston Strangular Featuring, uh, starring Kira Knightley and Carrie Coon and currently streaming on Disney+. Um, described in last year's myth program as a hilarious, wonderfully weird delight and handpicked by Screen Hub as one of the best Australian films of 2022, The Lonely Spirits Variety Hour tells the story of radio host Neville Umbrella Man, who broadcasts a nightly variety show from his parents' garage, covering everything from how to apply deodorant to in-depth philosophical musings. However, there's a lot more happening beyond the Foucault jokes and jazz interludes, and to help me unpack all the hidden gems of the Lonely Spirits Variety Hour, I'm joined now by director and co-writer, Platon Theodorus and co-writer and lead actor, Nitin van Gerlecker. Claton and Nitton, welcome to Primal Screen. Thanks, Felicity.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: My pleasure. And you're currently on a national autumn tour of your film, The Lonely Spirits Variety Hour, with one off special screenings uh, across the country. Here in Melbourne, listeners can see the film at Acme this Friday at 7 pm, and there'll also be a regional screening at Royal Theatre in Castlemaine uh, on Saturday at 11 am. The film has also played at select festivals and it's won some very impressive awards, including Best Film at last year's Sydney Underground Film Festival. Why did you want to tour with your film rather than having sort of a traditional general release in the cinema?
2: Well, look, uh, we think uh, it's a small independent film. Um, we, uh, at that stage, didn't have a distributor on on board, um, so... Um, and we really enjoyed how the festival vibe, um, we really enjoyed sort of how the, fe- how the film was received on the festival circuit and that festival vibe where, uh, you know, sessions were really full and we got to do a Q&A. And that's kind of priceless, really, because comedy is best enjoyed with the crowd. Um, and so uh, we took it on this tour and, uh, you know, for sort of, and we got to choose the best kind of and most iconic cinemas around the country to bring it to. It really is about bringing people together in a cinema to enjoy comedy. Um, and and the fuller the sessions, the, the, the better the audience kind of participation is in it.
1: Absolutely, and you've got the wonderful Nadine Whitney who will be uh, hosting those Q&A, so I'm very much looking forward to that. That is happening this Friday at Acme, and also screening at Royal Theatre in Castlemaine on Saturday at 11am. So, Nitin, the Lonely Spirits Variety Hour is in fact an adaptation of your theatre show of the same name. The stage play premiered at Sydney's Bankstown Arts Centre and then played at the Griffin Theatre. Now, in interviews, I've heard you describe the play in the film as being inspired by Jacques Tati, which perhaps is not a surprising influence, seeing as your PhD thesis was about the film comedies of Tati and the dance theatre of Pina Bausch. Can you tell us a bit more about your PhD and... And, and what drew you to Tati in the first place?
3: I would say that the it, it's a bit of a misrepresentation for us to say that the film is uh uh influenced by Tati. There's very little of Tati in there. Maybe <laughs> the physicality, uh the sort of forward lean I've taken a little bit from Tati, that uh, this approach to characterization. Uh we you know, Platon teaches at NIDA and he often talks about uh the students coming up to him and you know, in 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 a good way, but to Coming up and uh, asking him about you know the methodologies that they should be using to approach characters, so you know, and I, I always rib him about this because I've I used to be a big kind of reader of that sort of stuff with Stanislavski and Chekhov and Mikhail Chekhov that is not Anton um, <laughs> and this kind of acting um, pedagogy and uh, my approach to character in this film basically is um, I, I I lean forward a little bit and and that's it. and um it kind of issues all of that complicated um acting theory and that lean forward is very much taken from from Jacques Tati and and to an extent from Buster Keaton who is stuff I also like this kind of for if if you want to give a bit of a pretentious or not so pretentious uh reference to kind of comedy theory Henri Bergson's got this theory of comedy that is about forward momentum and the mechanical kind of um thrust of, of comedy and I think the lean forward is is kind of half jokingly, but also properly part of that forward momentum that comedy needs, and, and the physicality of Tati's—he's always on the edge of sort of falling over and in, <laughs> stumbling into the next scene. And so, I guess that you could say that 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 maybe is is the Tati influence, but very much it's more the other influence that was cited. There is Spike Spike Milligan, and I think that that's probably more of the territory of this film.
1: Yes, absolutely. But I, it's lovely to hear you talk about um, a little bit of your research and and also that that idea of the forward lane because yeah, it's so much in your mannerisms of Neville that come across. the The script is so dense. There's so much being said, and it's a great film to rewatch actually because there's a lot in it, and I think you do need two viewings in order to um, appreciate all of it. Platon, you've you've made sh- four short films, and your feature length debut, Alvin's Harmonious World of Opposites premiered in 2015. I understand this is your first adaptation of a play. So what were some of the challenges in adapting Nitin's theatre show to the big screen? Nitin,
2: Nitin was in Alvin's Harmonious Sort of Opposites and I really enjoyed working with him. And then when I went to see his stage show, I just fell in love with Neville Umbrella Man and I actually went to every one of the stage plays. I literally went to every show. <laughs> and Super fan. Like, yeah. And I was sitting at the front, just kind of like going, Oh my god, I'm in love with Neville Umbrella Man. It's he's such an engaging character. And I, it, for me, it was kind of going to the the stage play and watching Nitten perform. It's just like, well, how would how would we do this? Because the stage show, I guess you know, Nitton would Nitin describes it as a series of gags interspersed with other guests, other breaking up the 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 variety hour and and then and Nitin had kind of brought in a lot of other comedians and performers to do to break up um, his sort of musings on the radio, and so the me the biggest challenge was well how do I kind of um, bring more of a kind of a classical three act structure kind of a uh, kind of a journey a hero's journey to this how do I kind of um, Give uh, uh, give Neville a backstory. Um, uh, how do I kind of create some kind of heart, I guess, and and really kind of grounded in in um, a real person. Um, and you know, it took a while. I mean, we started adapting the stage play in twenty seventeen. We had some early draft in twenty eighteen. Uh, then it was sort of parked and then um, kind of revisited it in 2019. So it kind of had the, kind of had, uh, kind of uh, working into drafts in late 2019 and then sort of early 2020 had a final draft that we took into rehearsals. Um, but, I mean, it was really easy in some ways because Nitten was like, yeah, you could do whatever you like with it, <laughs> adapt it the way you like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Free uh, um, and uh, It was very easy to work with And, you know, I always, you know, I mean, you know, Nitin I needed Nitin's full support Because, uh, of course, Nitin was going to come back and star in the film And Nitin and I had worked together in the first film And sort of stayed friends We didn't kind of hate each other after that <laughs> which, you know. um, and, and also, you know, the film has a lot of cast that were in the first film And have made it into the second film So, you know uh, and we're also Nitin's friends as well, so it was kind of a group of performers and collaborators that it's kind of easy to work with, kind of fun to work with. We all sort of come from a sort of similar space, in some ways, where um, our 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 identity our our, our our identities aren't the themes of the film or the themes of the stuff that we create, um, which you know that can. That can become a lot of um, work um, by people that don't identify as, um, you know, white Anglo-Saxon. So, um, and you know, but there's a group of us who have kind of enjoy creating, um, you know, funny, interesting, wacky, whimsical kind of stuff. Um, and so, it's it's been great to kind of reconnect with all those performers too. So.
1: Nitin, what was the adaptation process like for you? Well,
3: my, my stuff, my tendency as a writer is to just uh, kind of prioritise the gags over kind of any sense of narrative coherence or, you know, I kind of write these sprawling monologues. And what Platon was able to do, which I really appreciated, was to give it that, that coherence that it needed to, to work as a film. And so where the show probably originally was um, hung on the spine of this kind of the loneliness of this character broadcasting to an audience of millions give or take millions what platon sort of did to it was um brought in this whole other dimension that for, for for instance the sabrina thing was very much uh a gag in in the um the kind of relationship between sabrina and neville and the interview and her completing the survey that sort of thing was just a but platon sort of thought he had he, he made that into more of a narrative thread and he also added all the hospital stuff so added some extra dimensions for me because you've got this figure that's unleashing this torrent of words into the microphone, into the ether, hoping that, you know, somebody out there is listening. And when you place it against all this, the hospital stuff, it kind of becomes more about life force and about projecting energy out uh, until you expire and hoping that somewhere along the line it connects with somebody and somebody's able to latch onto it. And the other thing that it brings to it as well is this idea that, of losing control over one's um, tools or one's language because the, the character is often on the verge of, he's just spitting out these words and is often on the verge, like, again, to go with the, the thing I said about the physicality of being on the verge of falling over. It's this kind of continuous roll-on that he gets on
1: and I think we should, we should note that you have won a tremendous number of awards for your performance and been up uh, against some very heavy hitters.
2: He won Best Actor at the Festival d'Antiquities in France and he was nominated for a Best Actor Award by the Australian Film Critics Association where he was up against people like Idris Elba, Zac Efron and, and the guy from Elvis. Like this is like this wow. little small microphone. And Newton has kind of received one Best Actor Award where he was up against
3: Peter Weaving and Ryan Quantum.
2: Yeah, he was up against people like
4: that. The line between illumination and total darkness, between the wisdom of the constellations and the great abyss of the cosmos, is a blurry one. Nowhere is this more acutely experienced than in that distribution of light and dark, artificial and natural, it's a real and perverse that we call... The Night. In his magnum opus, World as Will and Representation, Schopenhauer, after much deliberation and several knee surgeries, came to the conclusion that at night, it is quite hard to see. We must be wary of false prophets and furniture, sometimes both at once. I once confessed my sins to a coat rack for two hours. I woke up the next morning to find the coat rack gone and my bank account empty. In our search for enlightenment, dear listeners, we must never let down our guard. As my mother always said, the only people you can really trust are shoddy electricians, used car salesmen, televangelists, witch doctors, insurance representatives, politicians, religious cults, and big tobacco.
1: Let's talk a bit about the cast. There's a fantastic dance performance performed by Neville's Love Interest, played by Sabrina Chan D'Angelo. I won't ruin it for our listeners, but it does involve some lacy underwear being thrown onto a koala plush toy. You've also got TK Park crooning about his cat Waffles in another scene. How much direction did you give to the actors in these scenes? Um, were they involved in the choreography or, or songwriting or was this already mapped out beforehand?
2: Um, so the the, the waffle songs were actually written by my brother, <laughs> right. Peter, and it's based on a cat that they had called Waffles that my um, uh, niece Eleanor had that... Died, um, and so I asked him to kind of write songs about cats. And then we gave uh, uh, TK a recording, and he kind of practiced it to his newborn son for months and months.
3: Oh. Originally, in the stage show, we had a different song about cats, and so there was still the cat interview, the <laughs> interview afterwards with the singer. But we needed a cat, we needed some cat songs to go in that gap, and so Platons' brother wrote them. <laughs>
1: And the choreography was it something that you'd already done for the for the play? So you, was it the same as what appeared in the the play?
3: Yeah, the dance was. Uh, well, Sabrina uh, was one of the comedians that I had on in the original show, and she did that. She did that dance, so it was pretty much that dance that she recreated for the film. We've sort of re- had a rehearsal process where we tweaked a few things in it, but mostly it was the same dance that she did in the stage show. For Platon, for, for it was just about how to film that and get, get it across,
2: yeah. It was also about kind of connecting that with the sed- seduction process that was kind of directed towards Neville Umbrella Man. I think in the original stage show, it was sort of outwardly p- kind of played for an audience. Um, and I think um, in the rehearsal process, there were two things that came out. It was One, how limited the space was going to be in that small recording studio. So we really drew a line around where Sabrina could actually kind of, and how she could perform and really kind of centered it on a chair. And and two, it was about sort of really focusing it towards kind of actively kind of seducing um, uh, Neville Umbrella Man and and what that might look and feel like. But, you know, I mean, yeah, Sabrina is credited with the, Uh, choreography because she's an amazing performer um, and she brings so much heart and so much depth to um, that character. I I think in the rehearsal process, a lot of things, because all the actors are performers themselves, like a a lot of the rehearsal process, there was an element of playfulness to it and openness to it where we, you know, the script was the script, but then we were kind of workshopping a lot of the scenes as, as well as kind of rehearsing them. I needed to get to the end of the works, the the rehearsal process where everything was locked. There were no discussions about kind of dialogue or changes in dialogue, but it was all locked because you know when you go into filming something, you just need to make sure that there's continuity, that everyone's on the same page. There isn't a lot of time for discussion on set. And I think we rehearsed for like two and a half months and by the end of that everyone was so kind of super clear about what we were doing and how we were doing it. So The shoot was kind of much easier in
1: some ways. For listeners who have just tuned in, I am speaking with the director and co-writer of The Lonely Spirits Variety Hour, Platon Theodorus, and co-writer and lead actor, Nitin Wengerlicka. So for a film about a radio show, there is a lot being communicated in the visual space. So let's talk about the art direction and cinematography for a moment. Brian Rapsy is your cinematographer and editor. There are some truly uncanny shots taken at some iconic tourist attractions like the Big Marino, the Big Lobster, uh, the Big Murray Cod and the Big Koala, um, plus lots of objects of Australiana in Neville's garage studio. What was the thinking behind this?
2: Um, Well, for me, it's about kind of world building really, you know. Um, So how do you weld, how do you kind of build a world um, around the key character, Neville Umbrella Man, because the stage play was quite sparse in some ways, and it was about kind of really placing them, but also getting a sense of who they are and their backstory just by the sorts of objects that they collect and curate and, and, and hoard, you know, and in some ways, a lot of that art direction is um, kind of myself and my partner, who are generally kind of hoarders, <laughs> curators, collectors, and so we emptied out half our house and and filled it into a friend's garage and we built that sort of studio in a friend's garage. Wow. And then and then and then my partner helped us help me carry a lot of the stuff from our house into that studio space. But then I spent kind of probably around six weeks um scouring op shops and vintage stores, just getting the final bits, finding the right organ, um, getting all those little last details there. Uh, and, my, and my partner, Xingqin, is credited as, as a set dresser there because it was kind of us two sort of getting it together. And, and then, you know, when you're a micro-budget indie film and you don't have a lot of money, um, you kind of want to build more of these little detail things which you can control into some of those sort of outwardly big kind of grand stuff. So it was just about me securing permission to shoot in those big things um, and 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 filming them. Um, there was a joke, this, Nitin was like, oh, maybe we could just do it all on green screen and you could just plug <laughs> me into those locations. I'm like, no, Nitin, we need to kind of travel to these big things and we need to actually put you in that eye of the merino and film you there with a with a drone. I mean, there's a, actually a lookout if you climb, if you go into the gift store and climb up to the head of the merino, there's a little eye you can actually look out. I
1: didn't know um, that.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, we kind of traveled to all these places, did a bit of a road trip to the big koala, the giant koala, and the Murray cod, and just filmed in all those, and sort of connected that. It was just really about one, one making sure that people understand it's an Australian film, and two, also subverting a little bit of what that Australiana can mean and could mean, uh, and also um, the fact that uh, I think it says a lot about Neville Umbrella and the character when you see him in his space uh, and his comforts and his comfort place surrounded by the objects that uh, um, have sparked joy, you know.
1: There's a lovely contrast there where you've got the small space of the garage studio and then you've got these oversized Australian icons. I I love how cinema often acts, particularly national cinema, often acts as this sort of tourism ad for the country and this is such a subversion of that because you are going to these famous locations. There's a real kind of sadness, I think, to a lot of those Australiana objects and these um. These oversized Australian animals, and you're often um, shot just in—you know, there's no crowds around you. Like, like you said before, you've got um, Neville in the eye of of the ram. Yeah, there's a real sense of like strange excess to this film, and, and I think that really taps into a tradition in Australian cinema, almost kind of like exploitation cinema. I thought of. I don't know if that was a conscious decision.
2: Um, not from my not from my perspective. No, I just think that you know. Um, often, often what's celebrated as Australian cinema isn't Australian cinema. We've become vassals of sort of Hollywood, the Hollywood backlot, um, you know, um, so I, I, I'm actually quite offended by that. Um, the fact that films like Elvis and 3000 Years of Longing could actually be considered Australian cinema. Uh, There's nothing Australian about them for me, Um, um. in their accents or, or in the sort of the visuals that we see. So I just wanted to celebrate, celebrate kind of Australianness and the weird and wonderful and quirkiness of Australia. And, you know, we've all been to those big things on family holidays. We all stood there going, this is ridiculous. <laughs> oh my God, the eyes of the giant koala glow red at night. Oh my God, look at those big daggy balls hanging from the back of that big merino, you know? Um, you know, um, but uh, I know exploitation wasn't in the back of my mind, but but certainly ensuring that uh, this sense of kind of Australianness comes through, and um, and the mosaic that makes up this country comes through. Um, so yeah, and and also they're just great things to film, and they'd never. I, I don't understand why they've never been used in film.
1: It's really a beautiful image that um, you're capturing on screen, and it, it lends mm. for a fantastic film poster, which um, features uh, Natin and Sabrina. Natin, I understand you you do comedy as well on the side. Uh,
3: well, I never quite describe it as comedy oh, because it puts a lot of pressure on you. Too. So no, no, no. That's, <laughs> yeah, I do perform. I do perform comedy and in comedy uh, uh, kind of environments, but I just never call myself a comedian because that kind of puts an added level of, of pressure. And often the comedy circuit uh can be quite brutal. But a lot of people the audiences is often, you know, full of beer and, and kind of uh not very not as warm as say in a in a theater or an alternative comedy setting. So that's where I tend to perform more. The show is is the is based on a lot of the monologues that I used to perform at, at some of these events.
1: I mean you're also an academic, so you could just be a surprisingly very humorous <laughs> academic. It might be an easier pitch. What's next on the cards for you?
3: I haven't written anything for a while, but I'm 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 working on some uh kids uh audio tours of of, of uh different suburbs in Sydney with with a woman called Claudia Chidiak who's who's uh working on this project about kind of alternative forms of education and and kids reimagining their own kind of villages and what they would like their village to be like. So I'm the writer on that project, um, writing the material with the kids for the audio tour. And apart from that, um, yeah, just uh, I perform with a group called the Sham Gods, who are a choreographic business venture. And we have a a number of other services like lawn mowing and garden care and... um, a Petty Gripes helpline and, <laughs> um, babysitting services and, a, a, a talent agency, talent representation and misrepresentation service.
1: <laughs> that sounds wonderful. And, um, Platon, I understand, like, obviously you're in the middle of this, uh, national tour, but do you have anything else coming up in the pipeline?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm sort of in development for the, the, the next one, um, Uh, It's always so difficult. It was seven years between Alvin's and Lonely Spirits, so uh, independent cinema takes a while when you don't have kind of uh, wealthy backers or the screen agencies behind you. Um, um, Yeah, certainly kind of... Look, I've made Alvin's and Lonely Spirits to actually kind of try and get this other one up off the ground, which is called The Unity of All Things. It's it's a very... um, It's kind of way more ambitious in some ways, production sort of design-wise and um, conceptually more ambitious as well. So yeah, always trying to get another film up, but you know, it could be another seven years. Uh, ask me again in three years where I'm at with it, then we won't know. <laughs> I wanna I keep working with a lot of the same actors, you know, and so the challenge, of course, is how do I work with the same actors when a lot of the producers and funders and financiers want name actors which to me are kind of, you know, not memorable and a little bit boring. And so I, I kind of want to keep working with a lot of the people that I've worked with in the past. But um, so that's kind of a challenge as well as mm. an indie kind of independent kind of... Can film. you market
3: me, Platon, as Australia's Dev Patel?
2: <laughs> yeah, I could market you as Australia's Dev Patel. He lives in yeah. Australia now,
3: he lives in Adelaide, but... Um, <laughs> I, well,
1: yeah. But I think that you raised some really good points as well of how we talk about Australian cinema and what gets presented on a world stage and really hope maybe some funding changes to how we support um, local cinema and independent cinema and um, I hope there's some people listening who are in positions of power that might change that.
2: Yeah, look, I, I certainly hope so as well. You know, I've, this is my second feature film made independently. Um, uh, a lot of blood, sweat and tears goes into that. It's been seven years since the last one. You, you can't do it. One, you need the support of uh, uh, an understanding partner. Um, um, and two, you need the support of amazing collaborators like Mitten um, and TK and, uh, you know, Sabrina and Allison and, uh, you know, Joyce and uh, all the actors. I mean, there were 32 cast in this new one. But um, you, you need the, the support of... Uh, and, and, of course, Brian Rapsy, who um, was also, you know, the cinematographer and the editor... And you mentioned earlier about his wonderful cinematography. I mean, he brought so much to the table and his commitment um, and and interrogation of the material was, you know, amazing because you couldn't ask for a better collaborator who who puts the project at the forefront. And you're having kind of these amazing kind of creative aesthetic discussions. Uh, And that that went with all the performers as well. Um, I think they kind of really got under the skin of the idea of what this film was going to be about. And a lot of the discussions we were having were just how do we make this the best it can be? Um, you know, with the resources that we have. So look, I, I hope, I hope um some funding, finance, investment, I don't know, whatever you want to call it comes my way for the next one. Um, you know, or people will have to wait seven years until I can afford to make a new one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, the Lonely Spirits Variety Hour is currently doing a national autumn tour with one-off special screenings across the country. And every screening is going to include a q and I do agree with what you said before, Platon, about it being important to see comedies in a crowd. And I think Q&As are always a great way to unpack the film afterwards because there's a lot to talk about in this one. So Melbourne listeners can catch the film at ACME this Friday at 7pm. And for our regional listeners, there will be a screening at the Royal Theatre, Castlemaine, on Saturday the 1st of April at 11am. For the full listing of screenings across Australia, you can head to lonelyspiritsfilm.com. Platon and Nitin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks,
2: Felicity. Thanks for listening. I appreciate
1: it. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Anthony Carew and Flick Ford. Earlier, I spoke with the director and co writer of the Lonely Spirits Variety Hour, Platon Theodorus, plus his co writer and the star of the film, Nitin Vergaleka. There is a one-off special screening of the Lonely Spirits Variety Hour at ACME this Friday. And for our regional listeners, there will be a screening at Royal Theatre Castle, Maine. I keep saying Castle, Maine. <laughs> On Saturday at 11 a.m. And both screenings feature a Q&A hosted by friend of the show, Nadine Whitney. For the full details and to book your tickets, you can head to lonelyspiritsfilm.com. It is now time for our first review of the night. Uh, You may have picked it based on that beautiful track by Bikrunga, Sway. It is Goran Stilevski's Of An Age, which was the opening night film of last year's Melbourne International Film Festival, Uh, and last week it received a general release in cinemas. The film captures a fleeting but significant love affair between Nicola, played by Elias Anton, an anxious 18-year-old ballroom dancer, and Adam, played by Tom Green, the charming older brother of his dancing partner, Ebony, Hattie Hook, who just happens to be uh, the niece of primal screen regular Thomas Caldwell. Did you know that? I did not know that. (laughs) I'm full of facts.
0: Is that Um, on the – you have to add it to the IMDb (laughs) trivia section. I'm going to do
1: that now. Um, and here is a clip now of of an age.
3: It's tobacco. What else would it be? I I mean I don't smoke. Sorry. I know what else it would be. But you're a true good boy. That was okay. Being a good boy. Good boys make it out.
1: That was a clip from Goran stalevsky's Of An Age, which, as I said, was the opening night film of MIF last year. I think one of my favourite opening night films from MIF. What I, do you think? I
0: think the vibe was... Best best opening night myth film ever. I mean, <laughs> at least in living memory. Yeah. Yeah,
1: easily. Um, I saw it with you for the first time at that opening night, but it now has a general release in cinema, So I'm glad that more audiences will get a chance to see this amazing film. Yeah. Karoo, what are your thoughts?
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe you just throw it on me. Um, it's a very fun, beautiful, charismatic film, and it's, mm. uh, I guess especially relevant to 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 listeners it's a very melburnian it is right without trading in any real uh, australiana kitsch it's full of hard nouns in this city you know right at the start there's a bit where they're trying to find a, a street in the, in the Melways, and it's like is it in coburg is it in brunswick <laughs> no it's in altona you know there's lots of talk about watsonia high there's a scene in at least, uh, I don't know if it's in actual Greensboro Plaza, but that's what it's posing as in the story. Um, it, it really inhabits this sort of suburban milieu of like these wood panelled, you know, suburban palaces that, you know, the family homes in which uh, these kids have grown up in. Uh, there's, it makes very evocative and poetic use of like high tension power lines. Yes. Um, it, it's set in a very recognisable um Australian milieu that you don't actually see on screen that often, but one that's a, that most uh, people w- would have inhabited growing
1: yeah, up. Yeah, it's interesting because I heard that uh, a lot of the site uh, locations was basically decided upon by Stilevski driving around being like, yes, this is what I actually remember from my childhood. So it was very much like wanting to recreate that. And I love that in the clip that we played just before – you know, they're talking about getting out and trying to leave and it's interesting where you've got these beachside locations but also this feeling of claustrophobia within that. And I think the film does a beautiful job with those locations of capturing some of that tension.
0: Yeah, it, it captures that central yearning. So the the main two characters, uh, Cole, Nicola and Adam, they're, mm. they're talking about like this desire to escape. The first half of the film is, well, I guess the first two-thirds of the film is set in 1999. Um, there's lots of period specific things that, 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 <laughs> that, that situated there, not just the homes, but the, the pay and the mailways, the video easy, the station wagon with the Venetian blinds yeah. in the back. Um, I uh, don't know.
1: The soundtrack.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah we, we, yeah. we heard Runga before <laughs> people saying mad as and sick as, you know, um, and, the characters are sort of t- uh, the Adam character is about to leave the country, mm. and they're talking about you know one older, one younger, the idea of like escaping this this suburban setting in which you've grown up, the family mm. that's around you that you might find stultifying, and this is a queer romance, and it, there's a sense of the the oppressiveness of being queer in mm. suburban Australia in the in the nineties. Mm. Um, I think what really makes the film amazing is the way that it circles back. Uh, sort of 72 minutes in it's 100 minutes it's a very brisk uh, entertaining film Mm -hmm. uh, where years later these characters meet once again it's you know like the the sunset to the sunrise or you know call me by your name if you read the book you know this like (laughs) years later thing and uh, the film actually starts with a very brief um, framing narrative where you see the lead character of Cole making a phone call in this the the two thousand and ten time frame and then it rolls back mm. there 's something about that where it plays into not just this the the fleeting romance but the that how the effects of that can linger throughout mm. the years, how time rolls on, how feelings build up um, how things can become these outsized influences, you know, in your life, or even if just in your mind and perhaps the way that people romanticize the past. Mm. And I mean the, the very universal notion of kind of like the, the one that got away, the thing that you had, which you can romantically project on, or or make larger than life because it didn't have to inhabit reality. You know, it was a fleeting uh, romantic encounter.
1: And it stays as fantasy.
0: Exactly. And then the other person leaves the country. You didn't have to try and integrate that into like a real, you know, day-to-day relationship.
1: I love that you've touched upon some of the things that uh, were very conscious decisions as well from what I understand from both uh, Stolevsky, but also um, the DOP, Matthew Chung, who worked with Stolevsky for uh, You Won't Be Alone, which mm-hmm. was uh, one of for voted number one film of last year by the primal screen team. It was oh, definitely hey. my number one. You hate Did you like it?
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it had its charms. It was a very witchy horror movie. Oh, yeah.
1: I was I was obsessed with it.
0: But um, it was, it's a they're a really interesting sorry to interrupt a really interesting set of first two films yeah. where it's like the first one is this uh, you know kind of witchy Baltic uh, Macedonian horror movie yeah and then this one is this you know like a kind of head s- back
1: queer love suburban
0: story. <laughs> romance yeah it it really introduced they're both amazing films in their own ways and it really introduces Goran who's a Melbourneian filmmaker mm. as a person who feels like they could kind of do anything.
1: Absolutely, it, it shows his range, but it also I feel like his films do have share this um, fascination with humanity. And I, I was reading an interview with um, Matthew Chong, his DOP, who's worked on both these films, and they were talking about for *Of an Age*. They thought considered changing uh, the ratio and the angles that they were going to use for when they come back. You know, in the, in the early two thousands, to kind of create a sense of like. A, a shift in time mm-hmm. and they decided that there was too much distance that was created in that and so they wanted to keep that intimacy that we get and you know like a lot of the this this romance is um, blossoms in a car, it's a very sh- small space yeah. and they're talking about very big ideas and, and kind of wanting dreaming about a world outside.
0: And it's also and... a great low budget way <laughs> when you're making a period film you can have yes. the old car but if you keep these really intense close ups <laughs> on the two lead actors you can't see the contemporary <laughs> background
1: but, that's a very pessimistic um, uh, I'm sorry but <laughs> it's about the intimacy but sure, sure. they also talk about the way in which they um they they didn't want to have that in, in when they come back for this re. you know they come back for the wedding Ebony's wedding um how many years later about uh, 10
0: 2010 so it's 11 yeah. years yeah later. 11
1: yeah. years later after this really intense um chance encounter between these two men and I think that there's something really beautiful about the way in which the visual field of this film plays out That we have to talk about the cast quickly. Yeah. Um I just absolutely love Tom Green's performance. Like yeah, yeah. I, he is just so magnetic on screen. And I really feel like Elias Anton, he Definitely captures this awkwardness of a teenager on the cusp of adulthood who's pretending to act older than they are, and somehow just his anxiety and how he changes so much in that time when mm. he comes back. Um, and Hattie Hook is just this fantastic, like firecracker of an actor. Yeah, um, it's wonderful seeing her on screen. So you've got these three really strong leads, and. I just, I I think this is just a fantastic film and there's so much um, specificity to it with the times, but then it has these beautifully universal themes that run through it with the philosophical musings, but also just like the nature of relationships, like you said before, this, those short, short little moments of what could be.
0: Yeah. And like Tom Green's performance in, in many ways kind of makes the film, obviously Mm. he's given a great character to play, but for this film to really sing, it's shown from the perspective of this. 18-year-old is very kind of confused and is trying to work out who he is and how he fits in the world who latches onto this older person who knows who he is and has done lots of stuff. Mm. It it makes the film work so successfully for everyone in the audience to also kind of crush out on this object of affection (laughs) and he totally uh, brings that to his performance. It's so charismatic and charming and hot.
1: Yes, very much so, um, and I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Stalovsky last year. So um, that was to do with the release of "You Won't Be Alone," which um, you can listen back to on the Triple R website or by subscribing to the Primal Screen podcast. "Of an Age" is going to be is playing currently playing at local and major cinemas across Australia. So the Boston Strangler was the name given to a murderer of thirteen people in Greater Boston during the early sixties. There have been several films about The Strangler over the years. Uh, We've got the 1964 film The Strangler. You've got um, – there's a novel uh, called No Way to Treat a Lady that was then made into a film adaptation. Um, There was also a 1968 film called The Boston Strangler. There's a 1995 film Copycat, which – Gives a reference to the Boston Strangler. There's a 2008 film called The Boston Strangler: The Untold Story, and there's also a 2010 television film, The Front, which stars Andy McDowell. Um, and now, in 2023, <laughs> writer-director Matt Ruskin has contributed another film to the pile with hmm. Boston Strangler.
0: I must admit, having seen <laughs> no other previous Boston Strangler movies, I went in. I went in fresh, fresh snow, <laughs> untrampled upon.
1: So, Boston Strangler, it's currently streaming on Disney+. Plus. Uh, the film stars Kira Knightley as Loretta M- McLaughlin, the journalist who is responsible for connecting a series of murders, um, and alongside fellow journalist uh, Jean Cole, played by Carrie Coon, they come up with the iconic nickname, the Boston Strangler. Uh, Carew, what yeah. did you make of Ruskin's Boston Strangler? I think it's
0: perfectly fine (laughs) it's very it's mounted like a very handsome prestige picture it's interesting Mm. that it's just sort of ended up being shuffled onto i think it's hulu in the u.s and disney plus outside for the rest of the world yeah probably a victim of like a big studio merger it was originally made by 20th century fox studios so maybe they saw it as this big oscar bait thing that's the the feeling that it has it's kind of like this diet Zodiac with a with a sprinkling of she said <laughs> into it, you know? That's got to go
1: on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it's not I mean, it
0: looks very handsome. Shout out to the uh, cinematographer Ben Cotchins. See, um,
1: just on that though, what mm-hmm. is it with making every film, like true crime film, green? It's just, <laughs> it irritates me so much. I get it if you're trying to create a particular moment in the, in the film or a scene that... They want that kind of look to it. Mm-hmm. The entire film is just this green tint. Very
0: green and yellow, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's it, it's not even just specific to Boston. It's like when they go outside of Boston, still green. There's no, you know, specificity to <sighs> yeah. the use of this. It's just like they've done this blanket colour grade over the entire film of green. Yeah. It drives me mad, <laughs> I, okay. <would> just say.
0: <laughs> I must say that I am not a big consumer of true crime. What struck me... Perhaps naively, if I think about that, about this film, it's is it kind of interrogating true crime, why people are so drawn to it, and the effects that it can kind of have? Because it starts out, you think this is going to be about two crusading journalists who crack the case, but... I guess it is that, and it's about their battle as women, I think Mm. predominantly to battle against the entrenched sexism of the 60s, both in the newsroom that they work for and amongst police and society. And And,
1: and it's women who are being murdered. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and it's women who are are being murdered, exactly. But as the film goes on, it sort of becomes about media myth-making and the perils of press coverage where it's like if you give this very sensational press coverage – what are you what, what is that doing to the city? Is it just inculcating fear in them mm. and there is a belief the theory that, that I think the film sort of ascribes to you know that exists in reality that that uh one particular subject played by David Dasmalkian in the film sort of confesses to all these killings, but it seems really unlikely that he alone was responsible mm. for it. Twelve of the thirteen killings are still considered unsolved cases yeah. and there's this idea that men used copy you know, use the brand of the box Boston Strangler yeah. as cover to undertake copycat killings. And is the press responsible for that?
1: I think that you I think that's a very generous reading and I think those things are all there. Mm-hmm. I just wish that they were more there. There is so much that this film could be. And I, I heard one review talk about how you know maybe this could have been a mini series like Knightley's i don't I'm not a massive fan of Kira Knightley, but she's she's really good in the role and she's mm. like pretty decent boston accent um Carrie Coon is always exceptional on screen. people would remember her from uh Sean Durkin's divorce drama the Nest from twenty twenty alongside jude law i I think she's always exceptional
0: Ben Affleck's twin sister and gone girl That's <laughs> of how God. I always think how of could her. we forget
1: mm. Um there's so much here. I, uh, yeah, I think there's some really interesting choices with this film. Like you said, it does seem to focus more on the female journalists and the sexism that they face. That's a really interesting thread and I think really valuable thread um, that they don't focus too much on the murders, which just kind of tips into this, you know, could t- tip into the sensationalist. They don't yeah. actually show a lot of on-screen violence. The, the murders are kind of uh, just alluded to mostly. Um, I did feel like it's a very by-the-book by the genre um mm. thing it's it's kind of like i remember at one point being like oh they're gonna have a montage now and like <laughs> second later they have the montage scene it
0: feels very familiar that yeah. even if you've never watched a film about the boston Strangler, <laughs> as i haven't this feels like a very familiar film yes you know? and it doesn't like oh the the specter of zodiac is gonna linger over it but it doesn't have any of the i guess filmmaking panache that that has nor no. does it have that sort of I mean, that's an incredible film because it starts out with a bang and then it's just sort of slowly deflates and tapers off in a way that, you know, uh, evokes the, the real life investigation. Sorry, I'm hitting the microphone.
1: <laughs> that's okay. I was actually thinking that this, uh, what I'd love for this to be, is a more profound investigative journalist film yeah. a journalism film and i feel like that i actually genuinely like those kind of that genre you know like the insider good night and good um good luck uh, all the president's men like these are films that i really enjoy that whole journey mm. um i just feel like it doesn't quite reach the mark and mm. it it kind of just remains a bit On the same note Which is very frustrating Um, Mm. I was Yeah It's
0: a bigger swing Like uh, Matt Ruskin's Previous film Was this 2017 film Called Crown Heights Which was
1: I never saw that It
0: was I don't know if it ever Got released here Yeah okay Uh, Because he's mainly A
1: producer right It
0: won the audience award And grand jury prize At Sundance Okay And it's also based On a true crime But a more contemporaneous one Mm. um and this feels like a sort of expanding the canvas to make a bigger picture about uh, i don't know america not just a true crime narrative or a movie about injustice say sort of trying to redress the failings of police work of the past Mm -hmm. but sort of to trying to make a bigger picture portrait of american society at a time which is uh, i suppose a noble intention it's just it's interesting when you see these films that that just sort of feel like failed Oscar bait. Like it's such a cruel put down, but that's the thing that struck out to me most as I was watching it, that this was obviously dreamed of, that this was going to be a big and important film. And then the fact that it's, Essentially, going straight to streaming feels like an anticlimactic end to it, yeah. Um, and
1: you've and you've got kind of classic Oscar bait there as well, Knightley Coon, You've got Chris Cooper as, uh, as yeah. the kind of editor, yeah. They, they've got all the players that you would expect, and amazing, the, and the amazing
0: cast. They've got a you know, uh, A.V. Kaufman, the, the 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 queen of um you know, casting, like assembling and people like Bill Camp and Luke yeah. Kirby in these tiny, tiny roles. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah.
1: It's all there. I just think it's not executed very well and it's a shame because I actually think that the story itself um, of these two female journalists is very worthy and 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 very interesting in itself. Yeah, I
0: guess worthy is probably – th- <laughs> that's often used as a pejorative in film criticism <laughs> where it's like it, – it, it's yeah, I guess it's, it's a reminder of the very thin line sometimes that – that separates the, the the fine or the just good from the transcendent, and yeah. what is it that lifts things above that line? Sometimes it can be hard to really know.
1: Well, I think you know the film is 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 pretty short. It's like what an hour and a half, I think, or maybe yeah. just over. It's, it's a short film, and I just think it could have been extended and developed mm. more. And it doesn't doesn't have those like climatic hits that you're expecting. Um, but if you do want to check out <laughs> Boston Strangler. It's- Fine. That, it's it is fine. I didn't hate it. Three I stars. Just, didn't just
0: three stars <laughs> perfectly with two and a half. perfectly cromulent. <laughs> you know, Prestige Picture Entertainment. <laughs>
1: Well, it is currently streaming on Disney+. Plus. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Anthony Carew and myself, Flick Ford. On tonight's show, I spoke with the director and co-writer of The Lonely Spirits Variety Hour, Platon Theodorus, plus his co-writer and the star of the film, Nitin Virgaleca. Uh The Lonely Spirits Variety Hour is currently on tour around Australia with special one-off screenings and Q&As. Here in Melbourne, it's playing ACME this Friday. And for our regional listeners, it will be screened at the Royal Theatre, Castle, Maine, on Saturday. Uh, for full details and to buy your tickets, you can head to LonelySpiritsFilm.com. Also on tonight's show, we reviewed Goran Stilevski's Of An Age, which is currently screening at all local and major cinemas. And we finished the hour with our review of Matt Ruskin's Boston Strangler, starring Keira Knightley and Carrie Coon, which is currently streaming on Disney Plus. You can, of course, listen back online at rrr.org.au or you su- can subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. Big shout out to Luke Clay for, who, for editing our podcast and for doing the socials. Crew, thanks so much for joining me uh, tonight. Thanks
0: for having me on. Apologies that... We didn't get to talk about the Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Nike sneaker wars <laughs> film Air, which I haven't seen yet. It's out Maybe next, next week. It's out next week. Yeah. I feel like after speaking about the Adam Sandler movie Hustle last year, <laughs> that I wanted to become the basketball correspondent yeah. for Primal Screen.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we should tee it up.
0: Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R.